Meeting Real Life is sponsored by Omega Forge. If you can imagine it, they can build it. Omega Forge custom builds props, artwork, or just about anything you can imagine. They work with laser cutting, 3D printing, and a wide range of materials by hand. Mention this podcast to get 10% off your custom creation. To see amazing creations or to order your own, visit omegaforge.com. That's omegaforge.com. The other day, I decided to give my friend Tandy a call because she had just gotten a new position at a church, and she was telling me a little bit about it. And so, the, yeah, this Methodist church contacted me, and it was really funny in the interview. One of the questions they asked me was, <laughs> now, are you going to be okay with a female senior pastor? <laughs> I said, you have no idea. <laughs> you, who does? Wow. you have no idea. <laughs> but there's much more than just an inside joke going on here. There's some real history. That's because, as a woman who's called the ministry, Tandy has had to face some opposition. Some of it is subtle. Never being asked my opinion, being talked over, being called gal. I hate that. Or girl. I'm sorry, but if you're over 12, you're not a girl. Some of it is not so subtle. I had a, like, a deacon, a deacon, who liked to tell me, well, if I didn't have a girlfriend, I'd be trying to date you, a married woman. Well, you never say that to your male pastor. You never say anything like that to your male pastor. Tandy had a very clear, very supernatural experience that called her to vocational ministry. She has the gift. She got the education. She was doing some really big things for the kingdom of God. But you're about to hear some crazy stories of the opposition she has faced. And it doesn't come because of her theology, her style, or even her tattoos. No. It comes because she is a woman. And if you ask a large chunk of the evangelical church if that's okay... They tell you that the Bible flat out says no. You know, women shouldn't teach men. Women should be silent in church. That's their go-to. And that's, that's where they stand and they land. And you can tell them all day about context, about exegesis. You can talk all day about the whole of Scripture. <clears throat> you can go to Romans 16 and read them that list all you want. They don't care. On today's episode, we're going to hear Tandy's story. We're going to look at what scripture really does say about men, women, and ministry, and what it does not say. Finally, we're going to walk through the tension of what happens when wrong theology plays out on a large scale. That's up next on Meeting Real Life. So here we are now in episode three, really excited. Uh, We've had a lot of awesome things happen in the podcast over a short period of time. As a matter of fact, my head's still kind of spinning from it all. Um, As you heard at the top of the episode, we have our very first sponsor, Omega Forge. Some really, really great things going on there. So make sure you do check that out. Um, Also, the blog has been going. I don't know if you've been reading that. Uh, You can go to meetingreallife.com. I'm posting a couple of times a month, just some thoughts to kind of keep us going. And then and also, just a couple weeks ago, we had our first ever mini-sode talking about Bill Hybels, Willow Creek, and some of the implications that has for our, our next steps as an evangelical church. So definitely go back and listen to that. You can make sure you get all of the episodes by subscribing. You can go to iTunes, Google Play Podcast, whatever podcast platform you really prefer. You should be able to find it on there. Um, also, you can listen online at meetingreallife.com. 
And finally, social media. You guys are big boys and girls, and so you know how to use social media. You know how to find meeting real life. But I do have a challenge for you. You know, I was thinking about this today. Social media is so often bogged down by controversy and negativity. It's surrounded by the news cycle and opinions and stress and just, I don't know, junk. What I have realized is social media is one way that I have to connect me with people that I really do care about and people that I love and talk to in real life. So if you find value in this podcast, if you think this is an awesome podcast, if you think it's giving you a bit more of a framework to talk about faith, life, and culture, here's my challenge. Share it on social media. Share it with someone else. Even if they don't share your viewpoint, even if they don't have the same perspective, help it create some dialogue. So take a minute, share this, get it out there on the internet waves. It'll be great. So I've been excited to talk about this ever since I jumped up the idea for Meeting Real Life because this is a great example of what happens when our theological beliefs intersect with real life and how that actually plays back out in front of us. So when we talk about women in ministry, we talk about men, we talk about women and how they serve in the church and how they serve and even in terms of pastoral ministry, we're talking about two different competing theological ideas. We're dealing with two theological camps. So in one corner, we have what's called complementarianism. And the other corner, we have what's called egalitarianism. Now, if you're not familiar with these phrases, I'm going to give you kind of a really quick crash course. So first, complementarianism. A complementarian looks at men, women, and the Bible and says, okay, God made man, God made woman. They're equal in nature, but they're different in their roles. And these roles are static. They don't change. So these roles are supposedly designed to complement each other, which coins the term. Men are different than women. Women are different than men. There are differences. Those are God-created differences. They reflect the image of God. And therefore, there are even different roles assigned to that. So men, according to a complementarian view, have a unique role designed by God of leadership in their marriage, in their home with their children, and also in the church. A woman's role in complementarianism is in nurturing the home, supporting the husband, raising godly children, and I don't know, making sure the crock pot gets put on in advance so the house smells like pot roast when the man gets home. An egalitarian looks at men, women, and the Bible and says, okay, God made man, God made woman. They're equal in nature. But they're also unique in roles based on their individual gifting. In other words, there is no gender-based limitation on what functions or roles men or women fulfill in marriage, family, or even church life. To an egalitarian, it is a gift from God that qualifies one for a role, not what genitalia you happen to have. So those are basically the 30-second versions of what the two theological camps believe. But as we'll see, this gets much, much deeper and goes on. Now, keep in mind, I'm kind of front-loading this information before Tandy's story because you kind of have to understand the viewpoint of some of the characters in this story before she tells it. 
Now that you understand the framework, so, um, we'll begin. Yeah, my name is Tandy Adams. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, a recent transplant from the great state of Texas. And I'm now the director of family ministries at Castleton United Methodist Church. Started as a student ministry director and was quickly switched there. I uh, went to Howard Payne University for my my bachelor's degree in theology, and then went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, for my MDiv. Although I don't like to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I leave that off just about everything. Like I said earlier, Tandy has a very supernatural story of how she was called into ministry. I'll let her tell it to you. So as a teenager, I was a terrible teenager. I will tell you I grew up in a Christian home, and I did. I will tell you I knew Jesus at 10, and I still believe I did. But I lived through some rough times as a teenager. My dad died my first day of school my freshman year. God and I had a lot of conversations, <laughs> and I wasn't very nice. I rebelled the way teenagers always rebel. Uh, so, which I tell my kids all the time, you, you, you won't get away with anything. I've done it all. So, don't try. And, and shockingly, they haven't. I guess it worked. So there was a point in my life that was very, and I was 16, almost 17, uh, very depressed to the to the end of my rope, where I, I was ready to say I'm done. I'm done with life in general. And I had an audible experience with God. And people can call me crazy all they want. It's totally okay. Because it sounds crazy when I say it, but I hadn't. God audibly showed up in my bedroom and said simply to me, I have more for you. I have more for you. And that's all it took. I walked out of that bedroom and I told my family, I'm going to be a pastor. The day after she graduated high school, at 18 years old, Tandy loaded up her car, drove to Mexico, and worked at a church there as a youth pastor all summer. She slept on dirt floors. She didn't care. This was exactly what God had called her to do. So my calling is very real to me, which is why I think I defend it so much. Like, you can't tell me what God God did in my life in that bedroom. Nobody can say that. I know what he did. After getting her feet wet in ministry, Tandy decided to go to Bible college to get an education to better serve her giftings. To do ministry, I went to a Texas Baptist college, which is not the same as a Southern Baptist. It's Texas Baptists are more progressive. I hate using those words because they have connotations, but I don't know any other way to say it. Texas Baptists are, are more progressive, and so I, I, I got a theology degree from a Texas Baptist University where I was told, go use your gifts, go, you know, lead. Took two years of preaching class, I, you know, everything the men did, I did, and was welcome to do and encouraged to do. So after receiving her undergrad in theology, Tandy went off to a different school to get her master's in divinity. Now, if you're outside of the Baptist world, these little small distinctions might not make sense to you, but it actually matters a lot. So her undergrad was at a Texas Baptist school, but for her master's, she went to a Southern Baptist school, specifically Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
And I get there and I, I realize this is not the Texas Baptist world. And I didn't, I was not expecting that at all. But to tell you that I sat in classes with men and received, well, all, all I can say is go to hell look, that is, that was my everyday experience there. I wasn't, you know, invited to a study group or asked my opinion on anything, and not just from the men in the class, but from some of the professors as well. Now, if at this point you're tempted to think that this stuff is subjective, it gets weirder. For an MDiv, you have to have you have to have preaching credit. I'd had two years as an undergrad, and they refused to let me take preaching at the seminary. I mean, it was it was mandatory for my degree. And they refused to let me. So instead, they decided I should take a speech class. And I told them uh, that doesn't meet my graduation requirements. And they said, well, we'll overlook it. That was my introduction to Southern Baptist and women. So through her ministry career, Tandy told me she's, quote unquote, survived by staying closer to the Texas Baptist world. But even there she still ran into more of the same. She would go and work at churches that would allow her to be on staff, but would not recognize her as a pastor and would not allow her to preach. One church, I'd been on staff as a middle school director, because, you know, rarely did they call me pastor. As a middle school director for five years, our youth Mm -hmm. pastor left, and he was over the whole thing. He left, and I did the interim for him, Grew our youth group to about 120. I was over all the volunteers, you know, everything the youth pastor does. Um, Was told after that year that I should, by the pastor, why don't you apply for this job? It's full-time forever, so I did. Got an email, not a visit, not a phone call, but an email two months later that said, we love you, we love what you've done, our group is almost doubled, but we... We don't think a woman should lead men. And you'll have to lead men, volunteers and, and men interns, and we don't think a woman should do that. And so this particular church went from having her as the interim director already having leadership over men and decided to hire a youth pastor externally. So they hired this guy, and they came to me, and they said, uh, so we really like this guy. I think he's going to be a good fit. We're going to hire him. Didn't even have a bachelor's degree and had no experience in youth ministry, none. And they oh. said, we, we understand this about him, but we really like him. And we figure, well, um, it'll be okay because you can train him. So I'm not good enough to do it, but I'm good enough to train him. And they said, well, that, that way we'll have a man over the men. At this point, you might be going, wait, what? Why? So we're going to hit pause on Tandy's story for a second, and we're going to dive deeper into complementarianism and the scriptures that are used to argue for it. And to do that, we're going to listen to a clip by Reformed Baptist theologian John Piper. This is how he explains that viewpoint. Here's the text that we're talking about, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11-14, let a woman Learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, 
and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so in case you didn't get that, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. So Paul gives two reasons, uh, and they're not the only ones, for why he would limit uh, the teaching and governing office of the church to spiritually qualified men. Reason number one, verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is shorthand for about eight to ten pointers in Genesis 1 to 3 that God intended the man to bear a unique responsibility, not sole responsibility, but unique and special responsibility for leadership in relation to women. That man was created first is one of those eight to ten pointers. Second argument he gives is um, based on that order being ignored, namely when Satan comes and it appears that both Adam and Eve are present. That's pretty plain uh, in the text in chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis. Adam and Eve ignored that order, and Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What does that mean? So my answer to the question is, okay, all that to put in place. The question, here's the, here, here's the question. Let me remind the, the listener. Does 1 Timothy 2.12 leave open the possibility that women are permitted to preach in the weekly gathering of the local church as an extension or under the governing authority of the male elders of the church? And my answer is no. Neither of those qualifications that is, an extension of or under the governing authority of, overrides the teaching of verse 12. Paul would say, a female is not a proper extension of male leadership. Although I got to add a disclaimer. Not Paul, but Paul, according to John Piper, would say that. So remember our explanation from earlier. The complementarian looks at men, women in the Bible, and says, equal in nature, different in roles. Now, when it comes to this scripture, when it comes to 1 Timothy 2, the takeaway for complementarians is open and shut. And to be fair, it kind of does at first glance. I mean, I don't permit women to teach over men. It sounds really open and shut to their point. You know, and, and many people who would open a Bible and just read those English words, it does seem to say exactly what it says that women should keep silent and not be in authority over men. But here's my plea to you. Before you go out and buy a prairie dress for your wife or decide the Bible is a bunch of sexist garbage and throw it out your window, hear me out. So here's the thing about the Bible. It didn't fall out of the sky or get dictated by God or some angel or prophet. The Bible is an unprecedented collection of divinely inspired literature. It is composed over hundreds of years by dozens of men and women from all different walks of life. It contains several genres, history, poetry, personal letters, open letters, wise words, reflective memoirs, Greek-inspired apocalyptic poetry. Looking at you, Revelation. All of these letters had real authors. Those authors had real lives. And those lives were cemented inside a specific circumstance and culture. 
I believe there are many mysteries or misconceptions of the Bible that maybe at least get just a little bit more clear if we're willing to do the hard work of uncovering what was really going on when it was being written. And so, to see whether all of these churches and seminary professors were right or wrong to close the door on Tandy's ministry, we have to dissect this whole thing a little more and figure out where they're getting this from. Luckily, I found someone awesome to help me do that. Uh, my name is Dr. Marianne Mai Thompson, and I live here in Southern California. I am a professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. Actually, I'm the George Eldon Ladd Professor of New Testament and currently the Dean of the School of Theology. I have a BA in Literature from Wheaton College. I have an MDiv from Fuller, and I have a PhD in New Testament and Christian Origins from Duke University. I also spent a year studying abroad in uh, Switzerland uh, between my MDiv and my PhD studies. And so I asked Dr. Thompson some questions about First Timothy, complementarianism, and women in ministry. Well, the problem with the question, does the Bible fully endorse women for pastoral ministry, is in part, the definition of what you mean by pastoral ministry. There are obviously roles that women play in the Old Testament. They are prophets. That's not quite what we mean by pastoral ministry. And even in the New Testament, it's pretty clear that in the earliest church, you have certain people playing certain roles or functions, but whether or not you have anything like an office that looks like what we call pastoral ministry um, is open to discussion. And I think people... I think Dr. Thompson has a great point. You do see some really great examples of women being used by God in the Old Testament in some big ways. Starting with Deborah, in the book of Judges, she was, according to the book of Judges, a leader of Israel. She was a prophetess. You have women with entire books of the Bible devoted to them, such as Esther, who found herself married off into a Persian harem, essentially but was still used by God uh, and had this prophetic voice that headed off the genocide of the entire Jewish people. So while that is a great place to start, I think that it's not really a slam dunk case in endorsing women for New Testament ministry because, well, it's the different testament. Part of, part of the reason it's a hard question to answer is, is it, it depends a lot what we mean by pastoral ministry. When Aquila and Priscilla teach Apollos, is that pastoral ministry? If uh, uh, Phoebe is a, a deacon of the Church of Cancrea, is, is that pastoral ministry? And I'm not trying to be facetious or captious. I'm just saying it's a real question. How do you define what it is that you are saying when you say pastoral ministry? So those are a lot of names to throw at you. But basically, in the New Testament, you do find women teaching um, other men. You do find women functioning as deacons. But as Dr. Thompson said, does that mean pastoral ministry? What is the qualifier of pastoral ministry? What is that appointment to teach or to preach? Today, people often distinguish a woman can teach, but she can't preach, or she can share, but she can't teach. And New Testament just doesn't know distinctions like that, I don't think. Hold up. Does that mean maybe we're splitting hairs right now that the New Testament doesn't even really know? Dr. Thompson elaborated. And then some books, of course, don't talk about it at all. You have the Gospels who 
aren't particularly interested in the roles of pastors, but there are women who, especially in the Gospel of John, like the Samaritan woman or Mary Magdalene, uh, Martha in chapter 11, who are routinely portrayed as those who first recognize who Jesus is. They, above all others, get it right, and then they go and tell others. What do you call that? Um, So that I think we would want to talk a little bit about what we mean by pastoral ministry, but given the context of the times and of the the growing of the, especially I'm talking now about the New Testament church, out of an established Judaism, it seems clear to me that the New Testament is moving in the direction of including women in what have been traditional roles of pastoral service, teaching, leadership, and so on. Um, You didn't ask the question in terms of can they be ordained, and then you could say, well, who is ordained in the New Testament, period, you know? So there's just a lot of interesting um, ways we phrase it that I'm not sure it's the way the New Testament would have phrased things. And so I'm not talking really so much about the OT here, but you could include especially the prophetesses from the Old Testament to give you perhaps some... you know, uh, again, a piece of support for women engaging in the roles of public ministry in one form or another. So maybe, can women be ordained is the wrong question. And if the question isn't the right question, then what is the question? You know, if it's not so much can women be ordained, but what is ordination, or how do we establish that, then your focus of study shifts. And then we start to look at the big picture. You start to see what roles did women play in ministry all through scripture. Then you start to see a lot of stuff. Women sat at the foot of Jesus while he talked. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, they were the women who first uttered the news of the resurrected Jesus from their lips to the other disciples. Luke chapter 24. Luke actually says the men didn't believe them until they went and saw the empty tomb themselves. You know, this is kind of anecdotal, but I can't help but think of how sometimes my wife will tell me something, but I doubt it for some reason, until later I found out she was right all along. You know, by the way, Joanna and Susanna were two women who bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. That's in Luke 8. Then, look at the early church in Acts. In Acts 18, Priscilla, a woman, lays out a more accurate version of the gospel to Apollos. And then, in Romans 16, Paul commands a woman named Phoebe and uses the term diakonos, or deacon. Rather than figure out what any single book said at a point in history or time, it's interesting to ask in which direction does does the Bible seem to move along what trajectories? And so it moves one way with uh, laws about uh, food and purity and kosher, for example. Um, I think in sexuality, it's it's pretty clear it doesn't move much. You know, it, it uh, has pretty clear guidelines about appropriate sexuality. But on women, it seems to be moving towards uh, a role in which women play roles that are very similar or like those that their male counterparts play. So we begin to see a really strong case for women participating fully in the New Testament kingdom, but we still have this question of this verse, really the one that they flew in Tandy's face, the one that John Piper talked about, this verse in 2 Timothy that seems so plain 
women can't hold authority, women can't teach. What about that verse? How do we make sense of that? That's that's a big question, um, and it's not easy to answer in part because when we try and guess what the historical context was of any New Testament epistle or any book in the Bible, we sometimes get some clues, but we have to do a lot of reconstruction. I do think it's important to look in First Timothy about where this admonition comes, um, because you start off, if you look at First Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Paul urges us uh, to make supplication, prayer, intercession, thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peace, peaceable life. So what people don't often notice is that the word that I'm reading here, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard, mm-hmm. that word that they translate peaceable is the same word that will later be translated about women that they are to keep silent. So I know this is a lot of information meeting real lifers, lifies. I don't know what to call my podcast listeners yet, but I'm still working on that. Um, what she is saying here is that the word or the phrase that Paul uses in one of his letters to say we should leave quiet and peaceable lives in the public eye is the same phrase or the same word that he uses in first timothy when he says the woman should keep quiet so not necessarily like women need to shut up but there's this connotation of there needs to be some respect and some peaceable living here and so it's just curious why the admonition of what is for all people, we should live together in the public sphere quietly and peaceably, that should shape how we understand what he wants men to do and what he wants women to do. That he wants men, in verse 8, to live without anger or argument. Why? Well, presumably that's a demonstration of quiet and peaceable living in the public sphere. That he wants women to dress a certain way. Why? because that was evidence of the proper, modest, peaceable role for women in that ancient world. Let a woman learn, and then it says in silence, but let a woman learn peaceably. Why? Because that's what she was to do in that time and place. That was the the public role for her. So that you could make a pretty good argument that Paul is simply saying, look, for the gospel to get a purchase in its public context, There are places we fit in, maybe places we don't, but this was just one in which he thought certain ways of living for the community, for men and for women, had the chance of bearing the gospel witness to the larger public. So that's one way that is often understood. Here's a good example. Say you're a man and a woman and you want to go be missionaries in Saudi Arabia, which that's illegal, but besides the point. If you are a woman and you're in Saudi Arabia, you are expected, even by law, to wear a hijab in public. Now, if you're going to go to Saudi Arabia and you are going to meet people and build a relationship with them and tell them eventually about Jesus, you're probably going to have to start by wearing the hijab in public. Now, imagine Paul was writing to a church that was in Saudi Arabia today and saying, you know, this is the way that we're going to have to be if we are going to reach this culture, if we're going to uh, be a shining example, and if we're going to get that buy-in or that openness to what God is doing in our community. You know, that would make a lot of sense. But if we read that letter and said, well, all Christian women everywhere need to start wearing hijabs in public. Well, now, at least in the, the Christian tradition, in the Christian faith, 
You're taking something that meant one thing for one faith community and making it for all faith communities. So this argument is really starting to unravel. Um, why go ahead and add the stuff about, you know, not to have authority? Because that's the way, that's the way teaching worked in those, those worlds. So you, there aren't many, very many ancient stories, whether it's in the Greco-Roman world, you know, the Platonic tradition, whether it's in the Jewish world, where you do have women instructing men. And in fact, they tend to stand out as unusual. They cut against the grain. And I think it's important to ask, where in the New Testament do we have examples that cut against the grain of traditional expectations for women? And so you do have those in the book of Acts, you have them in the Gospels, you have them in Paul's greetings in the letter to the Romans. Those have to be taken into account as well. And we ask, why are there some passages like that that seem to cut against the grain of the, the cultural context and allow women roles of teaching, uh, show them besting men in argument. Why do we have that? And then we have this passage. Because this one seems to be a bit of an anomaly in the New Testament tradition, some people have then asked, okay, what's going on in this church that we should, um, wh what can we imagine that might be going on that would lead Paul to say this? We might be able to take some guesses at what that might be. Paul talks about these false teachers. They're straying from the true gospel that uh, was established. They were forbidding marriage. They were putting restrictions on foods. So there are some people within this church that were teaching the wrong stuff. And you can also maybe at least kind of make a hypothesis that there were widows that were becoming busybodies. There were these false teachers that were working their way into the homes of widows. And so... There could have been this, you know, imagine this group of women within the church, and those particular women were kind of the problem. And so maybe Paul's not addressing all women for all time, but maybe Paul, for this church, for this situation, is addressing these women. So instead of Paul saying, I don't permit any woman to teach over men, maybe he's saying, I don't permit these women the women causing the problems in your church, don't let them teach. Let them be silent, or in other words, let them be peaceable and let them conform to the structure of what the church community is trying to do so that we can accomplish the goals of the gospel and we can get rid of these people teaching things that Jesus never taught. Part of the problem is Paul does not spell out, here's the problem, here's what I want you to do, here's what's going on. So we're trying to guess a little bit about whether this is a particular situation or just something quite, quite general that he wants to say. So that's one of the reasons it's difficult. So we probably don't have a black and white Bible verdict either way. But from my perspective, we've poked a lot of holes in this biblical prohibition for all women in ministry laid out from just one verse. So these pastors who leveraged this against my friend Tandy didn't have a biblical leg to stand on the way they thought they did. Tandy, by the way, knew about all of this. She tried bringing it up at the next church she was at, and she hoped it would make things better. Unfortunately, things were about to get much, much worse. That's up next when we return. Meeting Real Life is sponsored by Omega Forge. Now, if you're like me, every now and then you enjoy a vintage, really terrible sci-fi movie. And back in the day, they made this live-action Super Mario Brothers movie. I don't know if you remember it or not. 
Anyways, there were these Swamper Jumper boots that they wore in the movie. And right now, Omega Forge, if you look on their social media, they're building a pair of those shoes for somebody. I mean, literally anything you can imagine, they can build it. It's fantastic. They use laser cutting, 3D printing, work with raw materials, all of it. If you mention this podcast, you'll get 10% off your creation. Go to OmegaForge.com to learn more. That's OmegaForge.com. All right, are you guys still with me after that musical break? I know that this was probably the first episode of Meeting Real Life that I threw a lot of information at you. It's been mostly storytelling, and it's still going to be storytelling. But the reason that I took a, a break in the middle of our storytelling was to give you some real context and to kind of maybe erode the complementarian view a bit. Because as we're about to listen to the rest of Tandy's story... The way that the complementarian theology plays out is so bananas and wrong and hurtful that it just has to be recognized in the context as the story is being told. So anyways, Tandy continued to tell me about the next church that she went to, which was the last church she was at before her current position. At my last church, this is what this is what it came down to. When my pastor left, he was all for me and let me preach a few times. When when he when Chris left, the deacons decided because it's a Baptist church, so they can do what they want, and they decided they needed to take this hard right turn on uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and women in leadership, and so they're going to adopt the 2000 Baptist faith and message, which. If you're not familiar with Baptists, we don't believe in Baptists don't believe in creed. However, they do have documents that kind of guide them. There was a, a Baptist faith and message from 1963, and then it was rewritten in 2000. Well, what happened in the 80s and 90s, and while I was at seminary, this was happening, was called the fundamentalist takeover of the SBC. They like they rebranded it as the conservative resurgence because that sounds better. I won't take up too much time, but this does check out. You can Google conservative resurgence or fundamentalist takeover, and it'll pull up a whole bunch of things. It's interesting to note that these things were really orchestrated by two guys. One, Albert Muller, who's still a um, evangelical Baptist powerhouse, and Paige Patterson, who has made his own news splashes. We'll talk more about him later. It was the fundamentalist takeover. And what they did is they came through seminaries and they cleaned house and they got rid of all women professors and they got rid of anybody who believed women could be in leadership and they removed them from seminaries, fired them, got rid of them. So all that happened in the 80s and 90s. While I'm sitting at seminary thinking, this is not going to end well for me. So in 2000, they rewrote the Baptist faith and message to include this idea that women can't be in leadership and can't be pastors. It wasn't in the 63. 
So a lot of churches use, a lot of Texas Baptist churches use the 63 because the wording was better for women. And so all of these Baptist churches adopted this faith and message and took this complementarian theology and put boots on the ground. They closed the door on women everywhere who are sincerely called and gifted by God to further the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in Alpine, when Chris, when Chris left, the, the church decided they're going to adopt the 2000. And I said, I can't stay here if you do. There's no place for me. Baptist churches are set up as a democracy, so to speak. So there, there was a, a big debate about adding, changing the Baptist faith and message. And um, it ended up where to, to do that legally in our church, it had to go through a church council. Well, the church council consisted of me and my female worship leader and um, a couple other people who were against this move, enough of us that we could have shut down the vote. So suddenly the stakes were set very high for Tandy. And as she explains, it all headed up with the elders into a showdown. So we were set to meet on a Wednesday night. On Tuesday, the head deacon comes into the office and uh, he starts telling me how scripture says women, you know, can't leave men and yada, yada, yada. And uh, I say to him, this is probably my downfall. I told you I don't have a filter. I said to him, so Scott, that's what you think the Bible says? And he says, I know that's what the Bible says. I said, really? And he said, yep, I've read it. That's what it says. I said, have you happened, did you happen to read the part about deacons? And he goes, well, yeah. I said, because it's right there, kind of in the same area. Did you read that? Oh, yeah, I read that. I said, so you realize then that you're divorced, so you can't be a deacon. You're going to have to step down. I said, and not only you, those other five divorced guys and that one who's remarried, he's committing adultery. Y'all are all going to have to step down because literally, if you want to read those scriptures that way, you got to read them all that way. And that's what it says. So they walked in the next morning and laid a piece of paper on my desk that said, effective immediately, clean out your desk. And uh, the only reason I was given is because I was too outspoken and opinionated. My friend, my good friend, who's president of the Baptist General Convention of Texas, he tells me, Tandy, it's not that you're outspoken and opinionated. That's who we are. We're pastors. We're supposed to be outspoken. He said, it's that you're an outspoken and opinionated female. And so just like that, hours before she was supposed to vote on whether to adopt the 2000 Baptist faith and message, Tandy was fired. The board passed that measure, effectively barring other women from leading ministries at the church. Well, I knew. I told my husband, I said, I can't, I can't do it anymore. 29 years of just fighting to be heard. And, and I don't even mean fighting to lead but fighting to just be heard uh, on anything, to be seen as more than a babysitter, you know. I said, I can't do it. I'm, I'm tired. I'm done. I thought coming in I was going to fight this fight, and I was going to change minds, and, and, but it, it's worse. It's not better. You know, the conservative resurgence made this worse, not better. So I feel the need at this point to just say... I'm not anti-Baptist, I'm not anti-church. I have some Baptist friends that are awesome. And the Baptist church has a 
rich heritage of promoting missions all around the world, taking it into remote places. There are tens of thousands of people who would not know Jesus if it were not for the movement of the Southern Baptist Church. Those in the Baptist Church, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We worship the same God. We study the same scripture. We are led by the same Holy Spirit. But the reason I tell stories like Tandy's story, the reason I dive into theology and examine and and sometimes expose certain things is not out of skepticism or anti-religion. It's because I love and I care about this thing called church enough to point out or explore the ways in which we're really missing it. You know, Martin Luther was the great reformer, and he had his 95 theses. It was essentially this protest of the Catholic Church selling indulgences. And he nailed that theses to the cathedral door. He was regarded at the time as being a heretic, as being anti-church. In that time, the Catholic Church was even a political structure. So he was anti this political power and it was very controversial at the time, but he had the courage to say, this is not God. He had the courage to say, I love scripture and I love Jesus that I have encountered enough to stand up and say enough is enough. And back then it was indulgences. What is our generation's reformation? What are the things that we finally have to stand up and say, this isn't right. This isn't okay. This isn't building the kingdom of heaven. And I know that's tough because we can all come to scripture and study it fervently and sincerely and a lot of times come away with different interpretations and different things. But at the same time, our theology matters. Our theology has very real world implications. For Tandy, it was over 20 years of denial and being shoved aside and being treated as less than and and her opinion and her giftings not being important or valued. But it goes much bigger than that. Earlier I said we would see what happens when this kind of theology gets deployed on a large scale. And we'll look at that real quick. So the main architect of the conservative resurgence was Paige Patterson, who up until recently uh, was the head of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You might have heard that name. That's because he was in the news cycle recently because he, turns out, um, back in the day, had counseled a young woman from the seminary not to call the police on an abusive partner. A natural conclusion of this, of how the SBC handles complementarianism is not going to end well. We're seeing that. Seeing it with Paige Patterson, we're seeing it with, you know, the way women are coming out in the SBC and saying, I've been treated this way. Those are not uncommon stories. They're, they're the norm if you're a female. It is a natural consequence of that theology. Nobody can tell me that it's not. I've seen it. I've lived it. That's, that's what it is. I understand these are really big issues and really big questions, and sometimes it's hard to know where to start. But 
I asked Tandy what she would want to say to someone who had the complementarian view or didn't believe in women in ministry. I would say to them, come see me pastor. Look at my fruit. Judge for yourself. Come see my pastor. Come watch Jennifer Gibbs at my church pastor this huge church and watch her do it well. I'm not going to. I'm not going to convince anybody. I'm not going to change anybody's mind. Generally, just by you know spouting off exegesis because they can spout some back. We can go back and forth all day. I can change anybody's mind. I will through a relationship, and I have. I've had men come up to me and say, "I used to not think women should be pastors, but I've watched you." It's interesting to rethink that idea when Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. You know, we think that to mean, well, any believer, if they have the right fruit in their lives, if they're producing these things that are consistent with the teachings of Jesus, then, you know, they're legitimate in their ministry and in their walk and in their sincere faith in Jesus. But what about the fruit of women in ministry? Throughout this whole entire thing about women in ministry and preaching and having authority, I'm always just like, well, like, why? You know, I'm a why kind of guy. So if scripture was to prohibit women in ministry, if it was to forbid women from preaching and from teaching, why? What would be the reasoning behind that? Many doctrines in scripture do give an explanation of why. So why this? Complementarians tend to say, well, the different roles complement each other, and so gives a more complete image of God and man and woman. But I don't know, it's kind of insufficient if you ask me. But if you look at it this way, the way Tandy said, look at the fruit. Look at some of the women that are helping thousands, if not millions, of people. Look at the ministry of Joyce Meyer, Beth Moore, and others that are sincerely bringing people to Jesus, equipping them to be more like him. There's legitimate fruit and ministry. Also look through church history. Did you know that some of the most establishing work of missions overseas traditionally has been women? Women who have given their entire lives to go into the wilderness where they're aborigines or where they're tribes people and preach the gospel to them. Maybe they might not be able to do it within the comfort of a pew and their Baptist church at home, but the legacy of Baptist missions has been built on the backs of Baptist women called by God to save the lost. Finally, I would have to say that I think it's completely and totally possible for us to rethink this whole complementarian, egalitarian thing, and be more open and be more welcoming of women in ministry, but at the same time still retain a um, orthodox and conservative um, sexual and gender identity ethic. I don't think there's a slippery slope, as many complementarians would argue. Actually, to the contrary, I think that women fully empowered and released to do the ministry God has called them to do more genuinely reflects the image of God placed inside of them at creation. And 
man and woman accurately reflecting different parts of God's glory, I think is one of the strongest cases of scripture overall for a conservative belief and theology and ethic of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Finally, I think that when I'm tempted to be discouraged about awesome, awesome women like Tandy, who are almost oppressed by their religious environments, I remember that God is sovereign and he is in control. And that even in the most not great circumstances, God can still move his purpose and plan forward. And so I'm thankful for women like Tandy who continue to pave the way and do the hard but meaningful work of bringing people to Christ and equipping them to be like him. Meeting Real Life is produced by yours truly, Daniel Crawford. Original music also by me. Special thanks today to Free Music Archive for some of the music for today. Also special thanks to Tandy Adams for telling her story and for Dr. Marianne Mai Thompson from Fuller Seminary. There are a couple of book resources that Dr. Thompson has written that I think you'll find really great. Um, We had a great discussion on God revealed through scripture as father or as male um, that she wrote a book about. It's called The Promise of the Father, Finding Jesus and God in the New Testament. You can find that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Also, uh, Dr. Thompson has finished her uh, really great work um, on her commentary. Uh, She told me it is uh, very uniquely called John. (laughs) You can find that commentary also on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Um, Also, special thanks to our brand new sponsor, Omega Forge. Uh, Make sure you check them out. And I will see you next time on Meeting Real Life.